look around the congregation as I was noticing people come in this morning. There are a tremendous amount of visitors with us this morning, which is wonderful. Word must have gotten out that I'm not speaking today. So it's just very good. um, I was downstairs a little bit. Speaking of, if you're in the fellowship hall, we really appreciate you worshiping down there. Uh, There's a lot of people up here you wouldn't fit, so I'm grateful for that. While I was down there checking on things right at the beginning of the service, I walked into the twos and threes Sunday school room, and there were 19 children in that class this morning, 19 little twos and threes. That's a lot of preschoolers. Pray for those leaders, so that's (laughs) wonderful. Well, we're very privileged to have with us this morning Professor Tim Nichols. He's here to speak to us. He's going to open God's Word. You can read his important biographical information uh, in the bulletin. Uh, You can read about his 15-year marriage to Tricia, their son Caleb, who is about one of the most delightful almost third graders you can ever talk to. Uh, You can read about his educational attainments, his his, uh, teaching at Lancaster Bible College, his ministry in uh, the church that they attend in um, uh, not too far away. Uh, I want to tell you just a couple ways that he has connected to our congregation. Some of you men may recognize Tim. He spoke at Man U a couple of years ago. I think that was the last time that he opened God's Word to uh, people in our congregation. Uh, Tim and Tricia also in their capacity, uh, partly as their ministry at Lancaster Bible College, did uh, premarital counseling for Jeff and Joelle Mindler. So far, that's worked out, so that's good. We're very happy about that. It's been successful so far. Uh, The Nichols also actually have a a close relationship with uh, uh, Dan and Chelsea Houck. Dan and Chelsea were going to get married in Tim and Trisha's backyard until the rain came down and the floods came up the weekend that they were supposed to uh, get married. Um, I don't see Tim that often. Whenever I do, though, he is very encouraging to me. I talked to him several times uh, when our paths would cross about um, my sermon series in the book of Acts, and he was always kind and encouraging. He knows way more about the book of Acts than I do, and uh, he still was just very helpful and encouraging to me. So it is my uh, privilege to have him come and open God's word to hear us this morning. So let us, the children of God, listen to the servant of God as he opens the word of God to us this morning. Good morning. It is a delight and a privilege, a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm looking out. It's nice. I, I know many of many of you here, so that's always encouraging. I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to uh, jump right into to the scriptures. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can come before your presence as your sons and daughters because of the merit and the worth of your son. We know we come before you only through his worth, and we rejoice in his matchless worth. He is our treasure, he is our delight, and we would like to see Christ in his glory this morning in increasing ways. This, by your sovereign pleasure, you've ordained through your word as the Spirit works in concert with it. And so we ask and acknowledge, because this is your will, that you would open our hearts to receive the word as we should, that it would bear a harvest by your empowerment for your glory and for the good of our neighbor as we seek to love them. Thank you for hearing us, Father. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus, amen. 
The question this morning that I'd like to begin with is uh, a simple one. It's one that we don't vocalize often, but it's one that we think about all the time. And the question is, what is greatness? What is greatness? How How do you define value or significance? As I look through my life, uh, identifying how I define greatness, I actually realized uh, as I was doing this exercise that I defined it differently the older I got. So uh, in kindergarten, I defined greatness by having the cutest girlfriend. And in second grade, I defined greatness by being the best kickball player. And in sixth grade, I defined greatness by trying to be a good student and by being uh, the quickest runner in our school. And into high school, I defined greatness by my ability to be on the National Honor Society and speak Spanish, although not fluently. And in college, I defined my greatness by my ability to study well and to proclaim the gospel. And after college, I defined greatness by my ability to communicate the truth of God's word to others and looking to be a pastor to excel in the pastorate. Now, the desire for greatness isn't of in itself an evil. We all desire to excel, to contribute significance or value in society. We all do this in different ways, of course. As I was uh, preparing for the sermon, I decided to just let, look up a Google search for what is greatness. I know that's always dangerous. So I looked up Google, and the uh, top, there was the top three hits. The, I clicked on number three, and it said 34 ways to define greatness. I didn't know there was 34, but they had 34. I don't know what there's the significance to that. And I was just reading through the list one by one. Self-actualization, 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 narcissism, narcissism, narcissism. And I thought to myself, wow, that's, that's, that's fairly sad. Uh, And it's no surprise, right? We are children of the light who have been called out of darkness and into the glories of the excellency of the kingdom. But we do have a concern to wake up every morning and desire to be of value, of value in the kingdom of God, to be seen as someone who contributes significantly in the kingdom of God. Not a bad concern. No, No one, I think, wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be mediocre today. I just want to excel at the bottom line, being the status quo. What we're going to see today in the Gospels is that Jesus is going to discuss greatness, what God values and treasures and esteems above all else, but it's going to be in ways that we might not realize, expect, and most likely not appreciate. And this is the power of the Gospel to transform and to orient our affections in new ways. So the question I have for you is, how do you define greatness in your own life? Do you define it by your relationships, by your business, the clientele that you have? Do you define it by whatever means it might be? How does Jesus define greatness? What would you say? So let's look at that this morning. And the Gospels are going to be our guide, as they often are, on greatness. But greatness is, of course, oriented to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is our king, so we don't share the value systems of the world. If we're going to place a value on greatness, it has to be from God's perspective on the God's eye view. And that's what the Gospels are concerned to deliver for us. 
It's interesting if you compare the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they talk significantly about discipleship and what God esteems. We often call those discipleship manuals. So if you're looking at Matthew's gospel, he has quite a bit of material on how, what God esteems for disciples. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, of course, is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 10 is a manual on missions. Matthew chapters 18 through 20 is a manual on discipleship in the community of faith, and on and on it goes. Matthew has at least six chapters on what uh, true greatness is in the kingdom of God under the rubrics of Christ. Luke has even more than six chapters. Luke has Luke chapter 9 through 19, where he expounds on what is greatness in the kingdom of God. How do we define that? Mark, maybe no surprise, has two chapters. But what Mark has in brevity, he makes up for in intensity. And Mark pulls no punches. He sees things in black and white. And he is a very difficult gospel. Um, So I trust by God's grace we are ready to hear how Jesus is going to explain significance and value in the kingdom of God for us today. So I'd like for us to open up to, if you haven't already, we're going to start actually a little before Mark chapter 9. It's always nice to set the context For Mark chapter 9 and 10, as I mentioned, that's a discipleship manual, but things have been happening up to this point in Mark's gospel that we really need to catch, if only briefly. In Mark, and this is very brief, in Mark chapter 1 through 8, and scholars endlessly note this distinctive of Mark's gospel, you have basically a hinge in Mark's gospel where chapter 1 through chapter 8 is all about the authority and the power of Jesus. There's nothing he cannot do. He can excise demons, he can calm storms. He can cleanse lepers. He can silence his opponents. Uh, Nothing he cannot do. And so we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 1 through 8. It's for no reason then the question naturally comes up in Mark chapter 8, 27, which is the hinge. And if you're looking at Mark chapter 8, 27, after they see the supremacy of Christ, Jesus, going along to Caesarea Philippi, says, who do people say that I am? I know you're probably familiar with this passage, and they have a variety of answers because Jesus is the apex of God's plan. And uh, some people, especially the disciples, are seeing this. Other people have just uh, an elevated view of who Jesus Christ is. Peter, of course, sees that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. It's at that point in the narrative that the hinge turns in Mark's gospel. And where I say often that the sun is shining and the birds are singing, the flowers are out in Mark chapter 1 through 8. The dark storm clouds roll in at this part in Mark's gospel. Because you see what Jesus does next, after he acknowledges his place in God's redemptive plan as the apex, he begins to tell them that he is going to suffer and to die. This is the first passion prediction in Mark's gospel. Mark has three passion predictions where Jesus is going to discuss the plan of God which is glory does not come before suffering in the cross. Of course, Peter, as we know Peter to be, is quick to respond. And so you see what Peter does. Peter takes him aside in verse 32 and begins to rebuke him. Uh, Turning around, Jesus turns in kind and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on the things of man. And I think that's a critical passage for us when we talk about greatness and values in the kingdom of God. We often have so imbibed worldly values that there is no real distinct difference between greatness in our view and in the world's view. Then he has a call to follow him. He is elevated in God's redemptive plan at the supreme apex, and so he calls for us to follow him. 
And so before we hear what Mark chapter 9 is going to present, we have to begin to realize that, first of all, it is Jesus Christ who is supreme in our life, and we are called to follow him. It's the values of his kingdom that is important for us, not the values of our own kingdom. Now, once that occurs, we go into Mark chapter 9, where we have the very famous, justly famous transfiguration. And while we would have heard echoes of this in Mark chapter 1, in verse 7 we hear this, this is my beloved son, as we heard with Jesus' baptism, but we hear differently here is the voice booming out of the heavens in verse 7, added to that, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is God's gracious condescension. As he talks about you can't reach glory without suffering and sacrifice, the father says, listen. And it's going to take the Father's voice for the disciples to eventually listen to what Jesus says. And so we realize, as we're working through Mark's gospel, he is the apex of God's plan. And the Father says, listen, listen. His stamp of approval is on the Son. We want to follow him. We should follow him in his kingdom values. But something happens in the valley in verse 14. As they're coming down from the mountain, the disciples have a real problem. Now, they've been commissioned by Jesus to excise demons, but they are unable, which creates quite a disturbance. Then this father, who has a son who has a demon, is crying out. And in verse 22, the father explains, it, the demon, has thrown him both into the fire into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes, him who believes in, of course, Jesus. And then I love this. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. One of my favorite portions of scripture because that is myself. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. In fact, the whole narrative here centers on the issue of deep dependence upon God and his resources. It starts with that. In the middle is the Father, and we're back to the disciples. As Jesus says, nothing comes about in ministry except deep dependence on God, exemplified through prayer. So as we're plotting this through, we realize very quickly that Jesus is the apex of God's plan. The Father says, listen to him. Orient our affections to the kingdom values. And this, though, is the precious truth of the gospel. We cannot do this on our own. So we cry out with the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. So I'm not going to be teaching moralism here as to what's wrong with you, what's wrong with me, why don't we imbibe the value systems of the kingdom. I'm going to tell you, do you see the supremacy of Christ? Ask him to help us. Because our natural tendency is not to put into practice what he says. I believe, Jesus, help our unbelief. And so that is the basis for the ethical teachings of Jesus. So it isn't as if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try better and watch yourself fail again and again. It's to see the supremacy of Christ, to desire to follow him, and then to ask at every turn and every step of our life, I believe, but help me. Help me. With that said, in Mark chapter 9, we're coming to verse 30, where we have now the second passion prediction. I'll read this as we're getting closer to our unit. Verse 31, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Perhaps they were afraid to ask him because of what happened last time when Peter made a comment, and he was rebuked. 
So the second passion prediction now leads us into the kingdom teachings of greatness. And this begins our discussion of verse 33. Now, just real quickly, so you can see how I'm setting this up, um, I've divided this scene, uh, and I actually haven't taken it through verse 50. That's a little bit too long. There's some time constraints here, so I would like to only take it to verse 41. So 33 to 41, I've divided it up into three scenes or three units or three acts. Uh, there's different ways you can call this. The first unit we're going to look at individually is verse 33 to 35. The second unit will be 36 through 37. And then we'll deal with the final unit, which is uh, verses 38 through 41. Uh, so three units, we'll walk through those. But what I think is very interesting uh, in each case, and you have to catch this, is what what is said in verse 35 is crucial, is the core of Jesus' teaching on kingdom greatness. And so if you don't catch this, the rest will fall apart. So the units are developing, they're crescendoing, they're climaxing because of what we see here in verse 35. And what you'll see is the disciples have failed to understand verse 35, which leads to the next unit, which then leads to the next unit as well. So they're progressively developing uh, it's helpful when you read the Gospels to do what we did so well in kindergarten, but we failed to do today, which is to connect the dots. So I'm going to ask you to connect the dots with me as we work through these uh, three sections in Mark's Gospel. Let's begin with verse 33 through 35. The first thing we have to understand, of course, uh, related to the cultural background of the ancient world is a concept known as honor and shame. Uh, in the ancient world, especially in Palestine, particularly in Galilee, gold and silver wasn't the most available or freely distributed commodity. It wasn't there, so you wouldn't define greatness or value or significance according to the monetary resources which you had. No, there was going to have to be a commodity that was more uh, available to the general public, and in the ancient world it was called honor and shame. You defined yourself by how you were perceived in your community. So they lived by rank and scale. This is freely evident in when you read through the Gospels about where people sat, how they talked to one another, how they distributed titles and what have you. Your desire was to be honored in society, and the worst thing that could happen for you would be to be shamed. That precious commodity only went around so far. Uh, the Greco-Roman world, of course, imbibed this. They had the pater familius, the head of the household, and he was the great one, and all people were expected to honor and serve and placate him. In the Jewish world, more particularly, they seem to have also expressed this Greco-Roman value system, especially when the Gospels with how they sat around the table with others. But you would see it even in their ancient literature. So often in the rabbinic literature, a little bit after the Gospels, they're discussing quite frequently, in paradise, who gets to sit closer to God. They believed that if you had certain virtues, you would actually be able to sit nearer to God than even the angels. And they prescribed rules and status and honor in that way. In the first century, the Qumran community actually established an order and a pattern. First, the priest. Second, the Levi. And then everybody else. And once you're in that role, you don't dare get out of it. And so we see the disciples, of course, are naturally involved in this system of jockeying for position and honor and status. Now... It's one thing to talk about the ancient world, and sometimes we say, well, that's them, this is not us. And we just have to readily acknowledge, I think we do still imbibe that value system of greatness, of jockeying for power and position. So in this 2,000-year separation, there is not 
much separation at all. And so this is the issue. Now, what is so ironic about this is they are discussing issues of greatness following on the heels of what? The passion prediction. Jesus has just talked about if you're going to face glory, it's going to be by the road of suffering, and they are full steam heading in the other direction. Self-aggrandizement and self-pursuit and self-worth. So verse 33, they come into Capernaum. Now, this is Jesus' hometown, his headquarters. He's from Nazareth, but now his ministry is going to be in Capernaum. It has been. And in the house it came about. Presumably this was the house of Peter and Andrew. Uh, They were rather small houses back then. And he's asking them, on the road, what were you discussing? What were you arguing about? What were you debating? And I just love this part of the text, verse 34. And they are keeping silent toward each other. Can you picture the sheepish look on their faces? It's somewhat like what my wife does to me when I try to sing harmony at church. She gives me one of these, <laughs> or a quick nub. Or... So there the disciples are, and they know they've been caught. Right? They're not following the model of Jesus, and they don't want to frankly confess what they've been doing. This isn't too far off from us either. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. He's taking them into insider knowledge inside the house and intimacy of formal teaching and going to explain to them as the posture of an authoritative rabbi. So he sits down in verse 35, and he calls the 12 to themselves. And you can picture them gathering here in this tight room. And then he says to them in the present tense, as if it's falling from his lips even today, If anybody wants to be first, you must be last and a servant of all. Now, it's interesting in the Greek text, um, it says, if a certain wants to be first, so you can see how the order is in the Greek, so emphasizing firstness is the critical concern you're, you're driving at, then Jesus says, of all you will be last, and of all you will serve. And so we learn right away the twin pillar of virtues of discipleship, discussing what is greatness or excellency is defined by lowliness, lastness, and service, diakonos, waiting on tables. Now that is entirely against the grain of the first century conceptions. You don't seek to be last and you certainly don't seek to serve. It's reflective of Plato in his text Georgius. He says this, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone. But this is rather interesting, is that while we might define greatness in the kingdom of God according to your office or your function or according to certain privileges you have or maybe certain gifts, greatness in the kingdom of God is actually not reserved for a select few. It's open to all people within the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful concept. We often think greatness is limited, don't we? But here it is a corporate experience for all who reflect the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus been doing in Mark chapter 1 through 8? He's been serving, deeply serving. And we have to catch this. We have to just camp on this for a moment. To help us, I'll read uh, what James Edwards says in his commentary on Mark. Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and the privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple task of serving others. 
Service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. Um, Part of my research in the master's program was wrestling with scholars, Jesus scholars, Jesus research scholars, who wrestle through what is authentic Jesus teaching and what is not authentic Jesus teaching. And if you're not aware of that field, that is perfectly fine. (laughs) It's a real mess. But scholars continually debate what in the Gospels is authentic that we can link back to Jesus. And what's so interesting in here when we have this teaching of Jesus is whatever the stratum of Jesus' teachings, this stands out in bold contours. And so even radical scholars say what we know about the authentic Jesus is this. It is found essentially here. And I encourage you as you read through the New Testament to see how Paul and John and James and Jude and Peter are wrestling through the implications of deep service to others, which is extremely countercultural in their context as well as it is in ours. Now, just to stop there for a moment, and I'd like to ask you to use your theological imagination with me. Uh, let's, let's pick on Peter. Peter's just heard this. You're going to be great. You're going to be last. You're going to serve. If Peter was successfully hearing this teaching of Jesus, what do you think he'd be doing at that moment in the house? Wife, where is my... I'm hungry. I'm guessing that a successful, what we call a successful perlocution or contextualization of this passage would be Peter saying, anybody here want bread? I'll get it. He's starting. He's starting to catch it, right? Waiting on other people. Very countercultural. Even though he's been on the Mount of Transfiguration, would consider that a great deed. Now he's willing to stoop down and serve those who weren't on that mountaintop experience. He's starting to catch it. And so some of us might say, I've got this. I am lowly, I try to be humble, and I do try to serve. But it's the qualifiers which Jesus is very intensive about. Who do we serve and how low are we willing to reach to reflect the kingdom values? And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus now in verse 36 to 37. He does what is so interesting and reflective of the Old Testament prophets. I'm thinking particularly of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Have you ever read Jeremiah and Ezekiel where they're going to speak the word of the Lord and they're going to do some very crazy things to enact God's judgment or pronouncement upon the people of God? And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he, not, he doesn't just say, he's going to now do what we call an enacted parable to symbolize, to illustrate what that means. And so we're going deeper. What does it mean to serve all? To serve the least, well, now he takes a child. And visually, imagine this setting. Mark lays it out for us. He stands him in their midst. So now you had 12 in the half circle, and Jesus is going to call not one of the 12 to be the honored person, but he's going to call a child, presumably in the back, and bring him to Jesus. Now the eyes of all the 12 are on the child. And not only that, but Jesus is going to take him in his arms, an acted parable of service and honor. And then he's going to say to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here we have what we call the golden chain or the chain reaction of the economy of God's kingdom. When you are serving the least, you are serving Jesus, and behind Jesus, you are serving God. 
Can you see the child before Jesus as he's speaking? And behind the child is Christ. And behind Christ, of course, in Mark's plan, is God. Now we have to stop again and look at some cultural issues because this one is a little bit different from our own. In the first century, their view of children is not perhaps our view of children. So we have to identify what is being said here by Jesus. In our conceptions of children, of course, we think the first things we think of when I say, tell me about a child, how do they reflect the kingdom of God? We would say purity, we would say faith, we would say innocence, we would say perfection. In the first century, those are not the words that they would use for a child. They would use words like vulnerable, weak, dependent, needy, and I'll add some marginalized, ostracized, not seen, and not heard. And whether we like it or not, that is the context in the first century. And so when Jesus takes a child and puts the child in front of them, we have to see he's not only speaking about the child, but he's speaking about anybody in this class who represents the needy, the dependent, the weak, the marginalized. Now that's a little bit deeper than just the first saying of Jesus. Now he's pushing a little bit farther on where perhaps we would like to go. Um, read you a quote from David Garland. He says this, The point of comparison is the insignificance of the child, the insignificance of the child on the honor scale. Children in Jesus' culture had no power, no status, and few rights. Their vulnerability made them utterly dependent upon others for survival. The saying about welcoming a child means that those who want to be great should shower attention on those who are regarded as powerless and insignificant. Now, so the class of little ones, dishonorables, is significantly increased when Jesus brings the child and has him stand in front of them. Now, we are a little too quick, I think, to say it means anybody who's insignificant in the kingdom of God. And I would say yes, because that's where we're going to go next in the, in the final unit. But we have to start with, at least, if Jesus is taking a child, he means a child. <laughs> he means a literal child. And then, of course, by extension, it means anybody else who is attached to a child by dependency and neediness, weakness, and vulnerability. So I'm going to read you a quote. And uh, because then it relieves me of the responsibility. This is Lenski uh, in his commentary on Mark's gospel. He says this, It's one of the unsolved mysteries of exegesis why commentators exclude actual little children, whereas Jesus says so positively, one of such little children. He actually had a child in his arms, and he's using it as a living illustration. And we are told that one of such little children is metaphorical and refers only to beginners in the faith, spiritual babes, and children. If anything is certain, Lenski goes on, it is that Jesus is speaking of receiving an actual child in the sense of caring for all its needs. From what Jesus says further, our next unit, we can conclude that he wants us to see in the little child an illustration beyond that of childlike believers whom we are to serve as servants, especially in spiritual matters. But this extension of thought is only an extension in itself rests on what Jesus says about an actual child. So first we want to be, least we will be, and servant of all we would be. And then Jesus says, in that scene, in your service to the most vulnerable and needy in the community of faith. Back to Peter. What would Peter be doing now in response? Perhaps he'd say, 
This one's a little tougher. But okay, little child, do you want a piece of bread? Now, Greco-Roman society, paterfamilias, the child, and all subservient members of the household serve you. So he is taking another step in the right direction. The child is weak and vulnerable, and Peter, if he's hearing the commandment of Jesus, his eyes are on honoring, establishing, loving, serving the least. How do we do in that department here in this church in America? Are we seen as those who go set our sights on and go right for those in the economy of God's plan who are considered the marginalized, the vulnerable, and the weak? And again, that is what God measures greatness by. Receiving the commandment of Jesus on his authority means we receive Jesus and we receive the Father. Unheard of in the first century to elevate a needy child to that extent. And that's what Jesus is doing in the program of God, elevating the insignificant in our communities of faith to a place of honor and rank and where we serve deeply. But that's not all. So we have a final unit. And now we have John. We haven't seen a lot of John in Mark's gospel. We'll see him quite a bit in other gospels. We see him in Luke particularly with his response to the Samaritans. But here we have John speaking. And he's saying to Jesus something which is very intriguing. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop them because he's not following our group. Now... That would be an unnerving experience for John, of course, because his belief is that Jesus is working through the kinds of the twelve. Jesus has commissioned them to excise demons. Jesus has revealed to them significant kingdom truths, as in Mark chapter 4. And the disciples fail in excising a demon in Mark chapter 9. So this is a real blow to their status, to their honor, and to their exclusiveness as to what constitutes their true kingdom of God community of faith. And so perhaps it's a rather natural question, and they're trying to impede this individual. Now, we also have to take into context that in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been establishing them and fortifying them in the fact that they are going to face persecution. And the lines have already been drawn in Mark's gospel. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. It started off in Mark chapter 3, where the scribe said, he's working by Beelzebub, the, the chief of demons. So the lines have been cast, and therefore this fellow inevitably and presumably assumes that God is working climactically through Christ. And under that power, he is operating. So we would consider him someone who sees the value of Jesus and one and through whom God's plan is working as he acts on behalf of Christ. But Jesus' response is really interesting and actually quite difficult sometimes to receive. He says, don't stop him. Now, at this point, if you've read the Old Testament, uh, especially Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 11, 26 through 30, you're saying, I've heard this before. Yes, because it's a perennial issue for any people who belong in the community of faith. What constitutes belonging? What is it that makes us have this country club and this clique? Now, in that passage, it's interesting because Joshua comes up to Moses and there are people who are performing a significant ministry, but they're not one of the sanctioned elders. Same story in the LXX, it's actually the same thing. We tried to stop him. And Jesus' response is like that of Moses. Word of God that he put his spirit on all people. So don't stop him, Jesus says, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see the fours there. There are three reasons why we want to maintain an open recognition and blessing of those who might not belong to our particular, I'll say it, denomination or perhaps theological persuasion, but who are still committed to the supremacy of Christ and God's plan. Uh, Brooks says this, the lesson for the church today is that tolerance, acceptance, and recognition should be extended to other denominations and to other persons of Jesus. Exclusiveness rather than inclusiveness has unfortunately been the rule of the church. And this is repeated emphasis in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that while we might be willing to serve many and to serve the least in our community of faith, in our denomination, Jesus is extending it once more (laughs) to now rather uncomfortably don't stop them, bless them if they are truly committed to Christ outside of your circle. And now we say, I can't possibly do this. (laughs) And I say, Lord, we believe, help, help our unbelief. How do we do with blessing other denominations, other churches, other people who are fully committed to Christ and through whom Christ is working? Do we bless them? Do we honor them? Now, back to Peter. What would Peter be doing after he hears this? (laughs) After he's given bread to the disciples, after he's given bread to this little child, he should be hightailing outside, trying to find the exorcist and trying to bless him as well. That is the profound teaching of Jesus that constitutes true greatness in the kingdom of God. Not reserved for a precious few, those who have particular official rank or office in the church, but those reserved for all people of God. The call to us today is to see the supremacy of Christ, to identify how he redefines greatness, and to live in that light by the power of the Spirit and play this out with great joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is truly transformative. It is truly convicting. We need your great grace to help us today. Christ, we see that you are the supreme apex of the Father. We thank you that you not only tell us what to do, but you've been modeling this in the Gospels, and now you give us the empowerment of your spirit. May we thrive in this joy, the light of the gospel in our own lives as we seek to fulfill your mission, Jesus. Thank you for the way your spirit works in concert with your word. Thank you for hearing us, Father. In the name of your beloved son, Jesus. Amen. Please stand with us. Uh, As we sing this song, Let It Be Said of Us, let's sing it with um, servanthood uh, and humble servanthood toward one another and even the least of these. Uh, Just keep that in mind as we sing this song.
to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated.